Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Students, teachers, and advocates are marching for stricter gun control. We have to have a protest to make sure kids aren't being shot at. I just want to be safe. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. I'm John Dankosky. We'll hear voices from protests and from the region's biggest newspaper, which is taking its own stand. Plus, how did a section of Vermont come to be known as the Northeast Kingdom? And is it really as idyllic as it sounds? There's that romantic sound of, of the Northeast Kingdom. And I just think it's, it's a good drawing card. And we'll learn how colonial America grappled with the really big questions like, how much is a pound? Taking the measure of New England, it's next. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative. Eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Energy officials in Massachusetts have announced they're going to go with Plan B to bring Canadian hydroelectric power to the Bay State. They've selected a backup project that runs transmission lines through Maine after New Hampshire state regulators refused to allow Plan A, the controversial Northern Pass project. But the main project, New England Clean Energy Connect, also faces an uncertain future. We have three reports on the decision from around the region, starting with WBUR's Bruce Gellerman in Boston. The announcement got kudos and criticism from those closely watching the state selection of a massive clean energy project. We're pleased that the process is moving ahead, and we're very pleased that Northern Pass has been terminated. That's Brad Campbell, head of the Conservation Law Foundation here in Boston. CLF vigorously opposed Northern Pass for many of the same environmental reasons New Hampshire siting officials rejected it last month. Then, after Massachusetts utilities couldn't negotiate 20-year contracts for the Northern Pass electricity, state officials pulled the plug on the proposal and went with Plan B to bring hydroelectric power from Quebec through Maine. Campbell says that project also poses environmental concerns, but they're manageable. We believe they can ultimately be addressed in the permitting process, especially given that roughly two-thirds of the line is in the existing right-of-way. The $950 million Maine project would run 145 miles of new transmission line from Canada to Lewiston, Maine, where it would hook into the regional grid. Dan Dolan, who represents electric power generators in New England and opposes any state mandate requiring utilities to buy clean energy, says buyers beware. In our estimation, it's going to be one of the most expensive power contracts that Massachusetts consumers will ever have to pay for. Dolan estimates wholesale electric rates for the Canadian hydroelectric power could be double, even triple current prices. Massachusetts Department of Public Utilities will begin hearings into the Maine project at the end of April. I'm Bruce Gellerman in Boston. And from Maine Public Radio, I'm Fred Bever in Portland. The big winner, Central Maine Power, is a subsidiary of international energy giant Avangrid, and it's the largest transmission provider in Maine. 
CMP spokesman John Carroll disputes concerns about the price to consumers. He says that all of New England recently helped pay for major upgrades here that were needed for the regional grid's reliability, upgrades that the new project would benefit from. We're able to plug into that and further leverage what New England has already vested in, and it just makes the project more economical for everyone. He says adding competition to the regional energy marketplace will drive prices down by billions of dollars. But some here also worry that the project's design will make it harder for local solar or wind projects to tap into the grid, and the Natural Resources Council of Maine is firmly opposing the plan. Lots of negative impacts on the ground and no clear benefits to our climate. The NRCM's Dylan Voorhees says that so far, no one has offered hard evidence that Hydro-Quebec would actually provide new renewable energy to Massachusetts rather than just shifting around existing capacity. But Hydro-Quebec spokeswoman Lynn Saint Laurent says the Massachusetts contract would drive down greenhouse gas emissions. We are absolutely convinced that this will bring GHG reductions. We have additional energy available for sale to our export markets. We have the capacity. CMP says it expects to win state and federal permits in time for a 2019 groundbreaking. I'm Fred Bever in Portland. And from New Hampshire Public Radio, I'm Annie Ropeek in Concord. Central Maine Power's victory in Massachusetts is a big loss for Eversource in New Hampshire. The utility's embattled Northern Pass proposal to bring Canadian hydropower through the White Mountains has a price tag of $1.6 billion, and a long-term deal with the Bay State would have helped pay for it. But Eversource spokesman Martin Murray says this isn't the end. What we're seeing is a growing demand and a recognition that this sort of energy is uh, desired. For now, he says they'll focus on appealing for their final building permit, which the New Hampshire Site Evaluation Committee denied in February. The appeal may end up at the state Supreme Court months from now, and longtime opponents aren't backing down. Here's Jack Savage of the Society for the Protection of New Hampshire Forests. I think everybody who's been involved in this will stay extremely vigilant. Even if Northern Pass can get built, energy analyst Jim Bride says they'll need a new financial backer. You can't just build a project this big on spec. It needs to be anchored by, you know, a long-term credible off-taker. Eversource and myriad other developers who lost out in Massachusetts this year may not have long to wait. Southern New England states are already planning their next big clean energy purchases. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Annie Ropeek in Concord. Last weekend, students from across the country led what they call the March for Our Lives. Marches took place in towns and cities, large and small, across New England. Sean Hurley of New Hampshire Public Radio brings us voices from Concord. I find 12-year-old Anna Steenberg standing well outside the gathering. Overwhelmed by the noise and the packed crowd, the 7th grader from Pike hasn't yet found the courage to push her way into it, to join her fellow students and raise a homemade sign that reads, No sign is big enough to list all the reasons I'm here. But even at this distance, she can hear the speakers. Um, I really like the poetry reading. Um, it was so moving, I actually cried. But I've grown immune to the news. Bombings, hijacks, mass shootings, collapsing, dying wounds, nothing is new. So don't you dare tell me I shouldn't worry that I am too young. This is the poem written and read by 16-year-old Daisy Young that moved Anna Steenberg to tears. Parkland was too young. Sandy Hook was too young. Columbine, Virginia Tech, 
Roseburg Maze, but the list goes on too young. The 12 year old takes a breath and wades into the crowd as now Katie Henry, a senior from Concord High, begins to speak. Henry tells the crowd that her mother is a teacher, her sister is a teacher, her grandmother and grandfather were teachers. We already asked our teachers to act as counselors, as social workers, and as mentors, and we famously underpaid them for this. No matter the training a teacher may have to begin with, it is fundamentally unfair to add bodyguards to this list. Ms. Steenberg disappears in the crowd. Melissa Hartford emerges to find a place for her four-year-old daughter to play. Hartford is a seventh grade teacher from Bow. She says it's impossible to explain school shootings to her students. Some of them are scared um, and they come in and they talk about it and they want to know, you know, will this happen here and will it happen to us? Um, and, you know, they want to know why people do this, um, why it's so easy for people to acquire weapons um, that will hurt so many people at once. Um, and it's hard because I really don't have the answers for them. Not everyone here supports the rally. From time to time, a dissenting voice is heard. I can't make out what he's saying and move closer. I see him standing on a snowbank, waving a flag, holstered gun visible at his waist. And then suddenly, someone races toward him and knocks the protester to the ground. As he climbs back up onto the snowbank and pulls his jacket away so the gun is visible. So, so who's the violent one? Oh, really? He tells me his name is Skylar Lee, and he's from Concord. It's important for me to come here because these people are, are voting on misinformation and skewed studies, and, and they don't understand the information that's actually at hand. Gun ownership in this country has gone down 13% in the last 30 years, but mass shootings have gone through the roof. You know what correlates with that 30-year period? The use of antidepressants and the violence in our media. Video games, m music, movies, everything. But everybody wants to blame guns. I have a gun right here on my hip. Guess how many people that gun is going to kill today? Zero. I sort of overheard you. It seemed like you were yelling something. Yep. What an were you saying? An armed society is a polite society. Oh, yeah. Somebody came over and hit me in the face. An armed society, it seems, isn't as polite as he thought. Another man approaches Lee, and they move away from the crowd to talk. I thought he had uh, to be listened to, so I took him over here, and I gave him an ear. And he, he disagrees with me. Michael Johnston from Stratum teaches media production at SNHU. I'm a Navy veteran. They tell me I'm the 52nd sniper in the Navy in Vietnam. And I saw a bit of war. Johnston says he remains a crack shot, is a firm supporter of the Second Amendment, and has been trained in the use of assault rifles, weapons he believes belong only on the battlefield. It's a false argument to, to say that a civilian version of the AR-15 or the M-16 is not an assault rifle. It is an assault rifle, and it was designed to provide harassing fire, cover fire, so that you can move against an enemy. It's not a hunting rifle. It's a rifle that makes a lot of noise and hurts people. That's the other thing. It's not designed to kill. It does kill. It's designed to hurt. We, like the deepest caverns of our tucked away regret, must refuse to be silenced. We must use our sorrow as our momentum and our momentum as our strength. 
I turn around to take a photo of the cheering crowd and see 12-year-old Anna Steenberg. She's finally made it into the dense throng and waves her sign from side to side. I mean, it's 2018, and we have to have a protest to make sure kids aren't being shot at. And I just want to be safe. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sean Hurley. As you just heard, the debate over gun control is an emotional subject. But the Boston Globe is approaching the conversation in a different way, by using cold, hard statistics. In advance of the march, the Globe's opinions section took over the front page and told the story of gun deaths in 2016 through striking displays of data, followed by the seven measures the state of Massachusetts has adopted to reduce these numbers. The Globe's thesis, if other states followed Massachusetts's lead, we'd see a reduction in the number of gun-related deaths nationwide. Ellen Clegg is the Globe's editorial page editor. We wanted to do something uh, right ahead of the marches, and so we looked at Massachusetts. We have some of the tightest gun laws in the country, and we have the lowest gun death rate in the United States. So we wanted to dig into exactly what we've done, what we need to do, and then do a thought experiment of what that might look like for other states and what lives might be um, hanging in the balance if states adopted some of these measures. And what you say is that what Massachusetts has done with its laws and obviously with the results in terms of gun deaths is, is that it fosters a more careful coexistence with guns. The Boston Globe isn't saying we need to uh, repeal the Second Amendment. You're saying something uh, a lot more nuanced than that. Yes, right. Frankly, our position uh, on the editorial board is not that we should repeal the Second Amendment, but we do think that states have an important role in public health. We see guns as a public health problem. States were very effective in enacting legislation on seatbelt rules, on smoking, and who could buy cigarettes. And that uh, had an effect over time. In Massachusetts, over time, these regulations were enacted, I have to say, in a bipartisan manner. Republican governors were key in implementing some of these regulations. We also see national polls that show 67% of people in the U.S. are for some kind of sane regulation of weapons. We aren't advocating for confiscating guns. We recognize that the Second Amendment calls for a a well-regulated militia. And we are respectful of that, but we do feel there are some key actions that could be taken. For example, in Massachusetts, local police chiefs are responsible for allowing somebody to get a gun license. Gun licenses are reviewed periodically. Police chiefs talk in our piece about why they've Uh, rejected some applications. The approach that you take by stacking up Massachusetts with all the other states has the impact, and it's a a very striking visual impact with some of the, the data that you present, of showing just how many lives could be saved 
in the other 49 states if they adopted the same laws as Massachusetts. In some ways, Ellen, it seems as though the Boston Globe is trying to shame lawmakers in other states into adopting some of the same practices that Massachusetts has. Is that part of your intent? (laughs) No, it's not our intent to shame anybody. This is very fact-based. It is a thought experiment, but um, some of the actions are very pragmatic. Sixty percent of gun deaths are from suicides. Uh, This is a very sad fact, uh, but it's very real. But if a state requires a gun to be stored, unloaded, and in a gun safe, that's harder to access for somebody who's depressed or somebody who's, who's bent on suicide. That has had an impact in Massachusetts, and it's a very pragmatic um, step that might be taken. Again, this is an attempt to marshal facts, and voters uh, and citizens are going to make their own decisions. I can imagine that many readers of the Boston Globe, when they got their paper delivered that morning or when they looked online and they saw this big front-page editorial, that if they are... Uh, pro-gun rights, that it might really turn them off right away. How did you think about it, and how did you deal with that eventuality that some people might not be willing to hear the message that you're trying to get across with the data, in part because of just the very loud way in which you you packaged this story? Well, this is an old-fashioned newspaper crusade, and I use the term newspaper deliberately. We do feel that that's what our comments section is for. We are eager to catalyze this kind of conversation. I'd encourage people to reach out to me to write op-ed pieces, to write letters, and um, weigh in in the comments to make their voices heard. Do you expect that the Boston Global wade into this kind of difficult territory again anytime soon? Yes, it's a, it's a key issue for us and one we feel very passionately about. We will continue to opine about this in our editorial page. We will continue to solicit op-eds. It's a preeminent public health issue of our time. Ellen Clegg is the editor of the editorial page for the Boston Globe. You can find a link to the article, Seven Steps, 27,000 Lives, on our website, nextnewengland.org. Thank you so much, Ellen. I appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, it sounds almost mythical. We'll take a trip to a place called the Northeast Kingdom. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. You've probably heard of Vermont's idyllic Northeast Kingdom, but you might not know the history of where this name comes from and what characterizes the region. Vermonters consider this area to be a bit different from the rest of the state. Vermont Public Radio's Brave Little State podcast set out to find out just how different it is. In their most recent episode, they answered the listener question, just how culturally different is the Northeast Kingdom from the rest of the state? Can it be quantified in any way, or is it largely legend? Angela Evansy is the host of Brave Little State. She joins us once again to tell us what she found. Uh, hello, Angela. Welcome back to Next. Thanks for having me back. So just so everyone knows, your, your entire podcast is people-powered. You're driven by these questions from listeners. So, so tell us more about the question that led to this episode. 
Yeah, so this month's question came from a listener named Walter Peronto, and he actually grew up in the Northeast Kingdom. And where he was coming from was uh, growing up there, he felt like it was uh, just not the right place for him. It felt like a really socially conservative place. Um, He's actually gay and remembers when civil unions passed in Vermont um, in uh, 2000. Governor Dean, who had passed the law, came to his school to give an all-school presentation. And Walter remembers his classmates, like, booing at the governor. Um, we asked the governor about this. He, he says he doesn't remember that, but it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Um, but anyway, Walter felt like, you know, this, this wasn't the place for him. He eventually left the state. And when he was, you know, out and about, he was actually living out in uh, San Francisco. He says he would always meet people and they'd be like, oh, Vermont, such a progressive place, so liberal. And he was just like, what? That's not the place I grew up. And had this sort of, you know, cognitive dissonance about the character of of the state. And so he began to wonder, well, is it something about this region, the Northeast Kingdom, because it has such a strong identity, it has such a strong narrative around it. Um, so at this point, you know, he, he's feeling um, he's feeling more positive about the kingdom in general. He, he didn't want us to, like, interrogate it or, or uh, mm-hmm. you know, give it bad press in our segment. But he was really wondering, like, is it actually different on the ground? Can you quantify ways that it might be different from the rest of the state? Um, so that was the question that he brought to the show. And we're going to listen to a, a segment of your episode in, in just a moment, but just so people can picture it in case they don't know exactly what you mean by the Northeast Kingdom, d- describe physically where we're talking about here, Angela. So the Northeast Kingdom is in the northeast corner of Vermont, and it's actually um, three counties, uh, Caledonia, Essex, and Orleans counties. Um, it butts up against uh, you know the Vermont-New Hampshire border as well as the border with Canada. So it's just right up in the, in the northeast corner there. So l- let's hear a little bit more now from Brave Little State about how the region got its name. Good morning, Northeast Kingdom. This is Scott Wheeler with the Vermont Voice, a program of 1490 WIKE in Derby. Scott Wheeler hosts a radio show and a TV show and publishes the Northland Journal, all with a focus on the Northeast Kingdom. In this recording, which is from 2010, he's talking to a woman named Lola Aiken, the widow of the Vermont governor turned U.S. Senator George Aiken. The man who coined the phrase Northeast Kingdom. Good morning, Lola. Good morning. Well, it's great to have you here this morning because, you know what, you're one of my favorite people. You're one of my favorite people, too, and I like to see you. The Aikens were big fans of the northeast corner of the state. So, and he used to fish in the Northeast Kingdom, and you said you had a particular love for Island Pond. Yes, I did. Right. Why was that? I don't know. I just thought it was a wonderful spot. The story goes that George Aiken uttered the phrase Northeast Kingdom at a meeting of business people in Lindenville. And uh, that was in 1949. He was at the Darlin Inn. Yeah. Uh, did he tell you, how did how did he come up with the uh, uh, title Northeast Kingdom? I don't know because it wasn't there. I was told that he stopped and he had suddenly gotten the idea of that expression. The Northeast Kingdom. Yes. And did you, I wonder if he thought it would ever stick the way it has. It has really stuck. Come over here. Okay. Okay. 1949, what was going on before the meeting was, in the years before. I met up with Scott Wheeler at an Italian restaurant in Derby to talk more about this. 
Scott says it wasn't just by chance that the region got a catchy name. They were trying to come up with a way, these, the, the business groups of the time, the area was beautiful, but it was also poverty-stricken. And so they were trying, you, you can read it in newspapers of the time, they were trying to figure out how to brand this area. It wasn't just to get people to see it, but it was also to bring economic commerce here. Since he interviewed Lola Aiken, Scott says he's become less certain that George Aiken did indeed coin the term. He's read an account that suggests Aiken may have actually heard it somewhere else and just repeated it. But regardless, Scott says Aiken was the one who popularized it. No matter who coined that phrase, if the Tri-County area had never been coined, what, you know, Northeast Kingdom or anything else, I don't think we would be thinking of ourselves as a particular region. I just and in Scott's mind, it was kind of a random grouping of three counties. It's really hard to lump the three counties together. We're so much different in so many ways. Orleans County is more, uh, well, at the time, was more Darien. Uh, then you have the lumber regions of Essex, which is the real kingdom. I mean, that's like rural. But then you have Caledonia County, which is a, the, the economy, I believe, is a bit better than the poverty that we experience in Orleans and Essex County. That's true, by the way. According to recent estimates from the U.S. Census, Orleans and Essex counties have the highest poverty rates in the state, just under 15%. Caledonia is in the middle of the pack, with Rutland, Orange, and Chittenden counties at around 12%. But Scott says that kind of thing doesn't stop people from mentally lumping the three counties together into a single place with a mythic name. There's that romantic sound of, of the Northeast Kingdom. And I just think it's, it's a good drawing card. And I, I, think, I think in other words, it served its purpose well. That's exactly what the movers and the shakers of the 30s and 40s were trying to do. It isn't a totally arbitrary region, though. Parts of the kingdom have bedrock that's more similar to New Hampshire than the rest of Vermont. And it's also basically hemmed in by the Green Mountains and the White Mountains. As a result, just in previous time, uh, it was a little more difficult for people to reach the Northeast Kingdom. Mark Breen is the senior meteorologist at the Fairbanks Museum in St. Johnsbury, the home of VPR's Eye on the Sky weather forecasts. He says those same mountains block something else from coming in, warm weather. And so the cold air sits down next to the river valleys and so forth through much of the Northeast Kingdom, and the warm air kind of goes over the top of it, almost basically skipping the Northeast Kingdom in some cases. Mark says the kingdom is colder than the rest of Vermont when you look at both average temperatures and record lows. The coldest official temperature was 50 below zero in Bloomfield, Vermont, but uh, there was also an unofficial 52 below zero recorded in Gilman, Vermont. He says the Northeast Kingdom actually gets less snow than other parts of the state, but the snow it does get sticks around for longer. It doesn't disappear until April on the average, and in some locations, it actually gets uh, closer to the 1st of May. And even when there's not snow, there's frost. Basically, frost has been recorded in some of those locations every month of the year. 
And so not only uh, does that make it a challenge in terms of gardening, but it makes uh, this location the, the place in Vermont that has the shortest growing season. And on top of all that, there's not even much sunshine to be had. We know that Burlington, Vermont is actually one of the cloudier places um, in the U.S., but I also know that Burlington, relative to the Northeast Kingdom, is much sunnier. And so I would expect that the Northeast Kingdom, if we can complete all the records, would probably come out just about even in terms of cloud cover as places like Seattle, Washington. Blaisdell of Danville has a few thoughts on the weather. Hi. He talked to Erica Heilman, the host of the podcast Rumble Strip. You let me come in. No. Okay. Well, how about we sit in your truck? Cause I'm freezing. Erica works with our show on occasion, and you're going to hear a bunch of interviews that she and Walter and I did all over the kingdom, scattered through this episode. I got. I'll go get mine. Break down quick. No, I'm back a lot. I don't want to bother them. Okay. So you grew up in Randolph, Tunbridge area. Yeah. How do you think the kingdom's different from other parts of the state? Oh, it's colder in, <laughs> in shorter season. Is that all I can say about it? I don't know. I, I'm not really, I'm, I'm not satisfied, you know, with the way of the world up here. I, the seasons are a little too short, and the taxes are just as high, and it's not worth a sh- It's not very, it's not the best farmland. You've got poor seasons, but I don't know. I, for what I do... No, it ain't going to make a hell of a lot of difference, but, it's not well, the seasons are short. So you get, it was two weeks in the fall and it was two weeks in the spring, so, it, and you pay just as much taxes, so you, you lose in the end. And so, it, it, it's nothing fantastic about it, it's just, I'm here, so I'm too goddamn old to leave, but it ain't very shiny. Another metric of difference our question asker Walter was wondering about is politics. And this one might not surprise you. Yes, the Northeast Kingdom is quantifiably more conservative and more Republican than the state as a whole. Lachlan Francis is a senior at the University of Vermont and a double major in political science and geography. When we spoke, he had just gotten back from a student political science conference in Washington, D.C., where he was presenting a paper he'd done on voting patterns in Vermont. So I took all presidential election results on a town-by-town basis from 2000 to 2016, and then I calculated a a Democratic Performance Index for every town. Lachlan disclosed to us that that he's worked for the Democratic Party on state and national campaigns. But for this project, he was just crunching numbers from the Vermont Secretary of State's office and then mapping them. And from there, I observed that Republican support was clustered in the Northeast Kingdom, all over the kingdom, as well as uh, in parts of Rutland County, um, and certainly in the more rural parts of Franklin County outside of St. Albans City. So yes, the kingdom is conservative in relation to the state as a whole. But Lachlan says it's important to remember the bigger picture. I think in the national context, what is interesting about the Northeast Kingdom is for how rural it is and for its sort of economic structure and, you know, some of the other Uh, identifiers that researchers have looked at when considering partisanship, the Northeast Kingdom is remarkably liberal for what it is. For example, 
the three counties in the kingdom have some of the lowest rates of graduation from high school and college in the state. This is something that tends to track with a more conservative vote. But in 2016, Hillary Clinton narrowly won Caledonia and Orleans counties. Essex did go to Donald Trump. Uh, I mean, it's just funny for us to sort of consider that, you know, given our own notions of, of how conservative the NEK is compared to the rest of the state. One quick note on religion, which our question asker, Walter, was also wondering about. In terms of the percentage of people who are identified as belonging to a religious congregation, the three Northeast Kingdom counties are not more religious than the rest of the state. This is according to the Association of Religious Data Archives at Penn State University. And by the way, those, quote, notions about the NEK that Lachlan referred to, people who live in the kingdom know what they are. Uh, you know, a little bit, uh, I wouldn't say dumb, but, you know, uh, a little not, not, not sharp. The Northeast Kingdom's got the reputation of um, maybe people being a little rednecky. You're considered a redneck because it's just a small town and... Redneck, you know, there's like less education here. It's kind of the bastard stepchild of Vermont in their eyes, not ours. The worst employment rate. Yeah, I mean, people do. They think we have nothing here. You know, we're backwoods. You know, they're like, oh, you have internet access? I'm like, yeah, we have really nice high-speed internet access in town. <laughs> Lachlan Francis, the UVM student, makes one more really important point. That the kingdom isn't the only place in Vermont with a really strong rural identity. I think this story of polarization as it exists spatially in Vermont is less to do with the other 11 counties versus the Northeast Kingdom and more to do with large and small towns. In his research, Lachlan drew on the work of a geographer named Catherine Kramer, who has written about what she calls rural consciousness. I mean, I'll quote her at first, I guess. So she writes that many people in rural communities understand public issues through a lens of rural consciousness. This is a perspective that encompasses a strong identity as a rural resident, resentment towards cities, and a belief that rural communities are not given their fair share of resources or respect. So I think, you know, in Vermont, this is sort of, you know, you go to the NEK and someone says, you know, well... We just don't get enough support from Montpelier. The lack of support from Chittenden County. Chittenden County kind of runs this state now. Chittenden County and Addison County is totally different. They get all the federal and state money. We don't get any here in the kingdom, or very little. Obviously, they're mentioning the kingdom, but, you know, if you go to Townsend, near where I grew up, or Shaftesbury or Escutney, you name it, like any small rural town in Vermont, they're going to say... On both sides of the political aisle, politicians up in Montpelier aren't listening to us down here in southern Vermont. Certainly, I think because the Northeast Kingdom is the most rural part of the state and there are less, you know, large towns and whatnot, you know, that really informs our understanding of the Northeast Kingdom. But I don't necessarily, you know, those attitudes exist elsewhere, too. That was an excerpt from the most recent episode of Vermont Public Radio's Brave Little State. It's a people-powered podcast, and this episode is called Is the Northeast Kingdom Really So Different? I'm back with Angela Evansy, the host of the show. Later in, in the episode, Walter, uh, the man who asked this original question that got you started down this voyage, he, he, he says, is the myth-making making the reality? That, that's a really interesting question. So as we heard in that segment, there's a lot of myths around the Northeast Kingdom, and 
uh, he, he's wondering, d- does this really manifest itself in, in changing the character of the place? What, what do you think? Yeah, and I just have to say, I loved working on this episode with Walter. I loved his question and his curiosity, and he was always pushing it forward, and it got pretty meta. (laughs) Um, And ultimately, though, that did feel like the right place to land is the myth-making, making making the reality. Um, Because when it comes to the kingdom, it sort of feels like the answer is yes. Um, We spoke with Carol Dixon, who's uh, dean at Sterling College, which is in Craftsbury Common in the kingdom. Um, and she teaches a, a class called Sense of Place, where they students at Sterling learn all about the kingdom, read you know famous writers associated with the Northeast Kingdom. Uh, people might know Howard Frank Mosier um, or David Budbill or Julia Shipley. And um, there is this way in which the stories that are continually told about the kingdom, whether it's in fiction or even in just like the way the place is marketed by the state, by craft breweries, by yogurt companies, (laughs) does begin to inform the way people think about it. And uh, Carol Dixon's conclusion was like, you know, if that's going on, that's just it is what it is. And if you can't separate uh, those myths from people's experience, you know, the the myth of the place, the story of it begins to take on a life of its own, then that does just affect the, you know, the way it feels to live there. I'm always interested whenever we have you on, Angela, because you are a people-powered podcast. You put out these big questions and you talk to people as you're doing your reporting. But now that it's been up there for a little bit, what are you hearing back from people? What, What sort of response have you gotten to this episode from inside and outside the kingdom? I would say that it's been a really good conversation starter. You know, certainly we've heard from people who just love the fact that that the Northeast Kingdom was featured in this way, that it's gotten this attention. Um, but certainly a lot of people weighing in saying either, yes, this is totally my experience um, being, you know, someone not from here, having trouble fitting in. But again, you know, that's sort of, I think, a common experience in any of the most rural parts of the state. And the other thing, too, is people really loved the music. We had great music uh, in the episode by Patrick Ross, who grew up in the kingdom and now makes music in Vermont. Um, so people really liked that, too. After all of this, do you think it's it's different from the rest of Vermont? Really? I, I think it's funny. We joke um, working on our podcast that the answer to every question we get is, it's complicated. <laughs> and I think that's the answer to this one, too. I mean, yes and no, for all of the reasons we've heard, all of the ways that people walk around with this story in their head, um, at the same time that, that you know, individual experiences are, are t- simply too complicated to sort of put in a, a simple box that says Northeast Kingdom on it. Hmm. Angela Evansy is host of Vermont Public Radio's Brave Little State podcast. Thanks, as always, Angela. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. You can find a link to this week's episode on our website, nextnewengland.org. Coming up, when is a pound a pound? Find out next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Thumb on the scale, loading the dice. The English language is full of these idioms for people who cheat the system. And if you've ever wondered why so many of these expressions invoke weights and measures, well, a good rule of thumb is to look back at New England's colonial history, when standardizing how we measure was a priority. Patrick Scahill of Connecticut Public Radio has our story. Frank Green is excited. 
In a lab filled with scales and measures, he pulls me into an office, firing up an old movie on his laptop. It's called Great Guy, a 1936 film starring James Cagney as the hard-boiled Johnny Cave. So these are weights and measures, Inspector, down in New York City. How about a nice stewing chicken, about six pounds? Okay. There you are, six pounds right on the head. Wrap it up. Let me see it. A suspicious Cagney swipes the hen, and with a practice squeeze, out falls... A lump of lead. The hen just laid it. Here, hold that. Cagney hops over the counter. Give me that chicken. I'm falling now. No, no, give me that. Green is director of Connecticut's Food and Standards Division, and he's smiling. It's like, it's funny, it's like I said, it's like weights and measures. We have a major motion picture, the major motion picture star on it, but of course it's 1936. And while hard-boiled panache and the ability to leap countertops aren't job prerequisites today, Green says the action portrayed in the film isn't far off from consumer protection's work. I mean, most of what we do is, is food or fuel. Green takes me out of the lab where Ian Daha, an inspector with weights and measures, explains some of the fuel work. He shows me a truck, and in the back is a tank, carefully calibrated to a certain measure. At a gas station, Daha can fill up, and it's easy to see if gas pumps are cheating customers or giving gas away for free. If it's under, we take it out of service. We stop using that pump. If it's over giving away more, we order repairing. And then there's all the other stuff they measure. Small stuff like jewelry scales at pawn shops, big stuff like railroad and truck scales, and weird stuff like those scales the half-naked boxers step onto before fights. 59 challenges. All those scales have to be standardized to a common system. And the thing that most surprised me when I look back even at the colonial times is how extremely difficult and complex this process of standardization was. Walt Woodward is Connecticut's state historian. He says for early settlers, the weights and measures issue was an immediate concern. Records of Connecticut's general court bring it up as far back as the 1630s, before Connecticut was even a colony. People are really having trouble over standardizing weights. They feel like they're getting cheated at the mill or they're getting shortchanged because this guy says it was a bushel, but it wasn't a whole bushel. So in 1638, they get together. In 1639, they formalize the colony, but they still haven't got this weights and measures things worked out. A few years later, the general court tackled it again, asking each town to bring in their local standards, compare them, and agree on a shared one. The result? Total failure. So the debate continued, and in 1644, it was decided newly minted town clerks would take over weights and measures. Each clerk brought their local standards to Hartford, where they measured against a standard for the whole colony. So they really are trying to get a uniform system of measurement. It's called traceability, one weight standardized to another to ensure everyone's talking a common language. Eventually, Connecticut decided to make its weights traceable to standards in England, and by the 1750s, the issue was basically settled. But measurement debates have cropped up over the years, like American resistance to the French metric system. Today, the U.S. standardizes to weights and measures in Paris, and those standards are managed by the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST. NIST formed out of the rise of American industrialization, and the U.S. needed standards for pretty much everything. Ken Butcher works for NIST in their Weights and Measures office. He says there was the obvious stuff, like electricity, and the not-so-obvious stuff, like fire hydrants, a shortcoming discovered following a 1904 fire in Baltimore. The fire departments from all over the region 
went to Baltimore uh, to help fight the fire, but then they couldn't hook up to the water hydrants. The reason? Fittings weren't standardized. Today, Butcher says new technology creates a need for new measures in fields like computers, energy, even dental adhesives. So just about anything. And just like Jimmy Cagney's hard-boiled Johnny Cave, DCP's Frank Green says consumers are watching. Whether it's too much packaging on their deli meat or a gas pump cheating them out of hard-earned cash. People are very savvy and, you know, they do look. They do look. After all, America runs on commerce, and commerce runs on measurement. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. It might still feel like winter, but baseball season starts this weekend. The Yard Goats, Hartford, Connecticut's charmingly named minor league baseball team, is getting ready for the new season. And so are some non-players who hope to perform the national anthem at their home games. New England Public Radio's Tema Silk was at the auditions. If you were to make it to every Yard Goats game this season and get there before the first pitch you could hear 70 different renditions of the Star-Spangled Banner. Henry Smith's could be one of them. He's a security guard, and he's come to Dunkin' Donuts Park to try out. Not on the field today, but in a glassed-in suite way above home plate. An acoustical paradise, it's not, but the view is great. Smith's no newcomer to performing. He's been a contestant on American Idol. But for plenty of people auditioning here, singing before thousands would be a first. Eight-year-old Kayla Prelo looks remarkably calm as she waits to be called. Someone at her after-school program heard her sing and suggested she try out. I'm a singer, so I want to know how Kayla's going to find her starting note. She tells me in voice lessons they've been working on that. We practiced what note because I always go on that note. So how are you just going to know? You're not going to have a piano there. You're just going to do it? I think it's G. So can you sing it? Oh, say. Like that. Actually, it's an E. But what a set of pipes. Minutes later, it's Kayla's turn to go in. She and her parents are greeted by two men. Neither of them are musicians. Like the other handful of judges, they're part of the Yard Goat's front office staff. Judge Steve Given sets the scene for Kayla. Imagine a capacity crowd, 7,000 people. They're all getting to their seats. You can smell the popcorn in the air, the freshly mown grass. The team is taking the field, and we're ready to, uh, to play ball. We just need you to perform the anthem to get us started, OK? Kayla starts. You try it. Our anthem's lyrics are killer. 
In another room, with a great view of third base, is Yard Goat's general manager, Mike Abramson. He says he's seen lots of people sing the anthem, and crowds really react differently to each performer. So it's just getting the vibe that you know will really get the crowd behind the singer and have people enjoy the experience of it. This is the Yard Goat's second season at Dunkin' Donuts Park, and the number of soloists, groups, even a saxophonist who signed up to audition is more than double last year's, 400 in all many more than possibly needed. But at a Yard Goats game, it's not just the anthem that gets sung. And whenever you're ready, you start and belt it right out. Judge Abramson is listening to six-year-old Natalie Malinowski. He's impressed she can sing on key, and he asks her, can she sing the anthem too? It's not in her repertoire. The night before the auditions, Henry Smith, the one on American Idol, waffled about trying out. He's not a GOATS fan. He's never even been to a game. But if he gets the chance to sing... That's New England Public Radio's Tema Silk reporting. By the way, the Yard Goats opening day in Hartford is April 5th. Play ball. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson and Ali Oshinsky. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. If you'd like to hear more of his music, go to toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.